Welcome into a brand new episode of the Whole Story Podcast. On today's episode, Dave O'Brien, TV play-by-play voice of the Boston Red Sox. Dave, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. How are you holding up during this such an unprecedented time? Yeah, thanks, Alex. Great to be with you. And it is such a bizarre time. And you're probably in the same boat I am where you wake up every morning and that's what you say. Oh, my God, is this a weird, bizarre, strange time? And your, your thoughts immediately go to the people who have been deeply affected. I, I have friends who have contracted the coronavirus and have recovered. Uh, I know family members who did not. Uh, my own son had to be tested for it a, about two weeks ago uh, because he was having some of the symptoms. It's a very, very, very scary time. My oldest daughter, Samantha, who's also in broadcasting, lives in San Francisco. They've been on lockdown for about five weeks. about longer than anybody. So, um, you know, your heart goes out to, you know, the first responders and the doctors and the nurses who are right there on the front line and and people who work in, let's not forget people who work in grocery stores and and put, you know, they're putting themselves on the line every day. But think to yourself, uh, you know, six weeks ago, could you ever believe that, you know, 300 million Americans would all be thinking about the same thing every single day? That's extraordinary. And I tend to take a a very optimistic and positive view. I think that we will get back to normal sooner than later. But boy, it's a frightening time for everybody. And I hope you're doing well in your family as well as as everybody else. You know, I started this podcast just a few weeks ago in hopes that it gives people the time to just break away and to think about baseball or to think about something other than what's happening around the world, just a little breakaway. So let's Mm -hmm. jump into it. Talk about your career. It's been an interesting turn for sure the last couple of weeks with no sports and sports is a part of your DNA. And I know this time last year, it's hard to think about, but right around this time, we were actually together in the broadcast booth at Fenway, but now no one is there during this time. And if you look back at it, and a lot of people may not know this, but during the baseball offseason, you're not just sitting at home, you're working with ESPN, calling yeah. college basketball. So now right. with no sports, it must be a little challenging for you right during this time. It's challenging is, is one good word for it. And, you know, we all tend to then kind of look at ourselves and what's happening in our own lives. And, and, and you, you mentioned it, you know, baseball is in my DNA. This is going to be my 30th year in a major league broadcast booth. So it gets into your blood. And we had already been at spring training. I had already called a handful of, spring training games, we were already into the, into the rhythm of spring and then soon enough what was going to be the regular season opener on March 26th, which of course never happened. But right now the Red Sox are supposed to be on the West Coast, you know. We're supposed to be out there playing West Coast teams and, and about three weeks into the baseball season. So I, w- I did a, a broadcast thing today with Dennis Eckersley and Jerry Remy, uh, my broadcast partners on New England Sports Network. And uh, Eck was saying, you know, I, it's hard to get into talking about baseball right now because it feels so far away when it's supposed to be right there. You know, we're supp- I should be leaving for the ballpark, you know, any minute uh, to get down to Fenway Park to call uh, on a typical day like this to call a game at seven o'clock at night. Or if I'm on the road, I'd be on my way to the park any minute. And, you know, that rhythm is gone. And baseball is very much 
a rhythm sport because you play every single day. And I always look at the season as every month is a new chapter in the book on that season. And all of those seasons are so unique. And every chapter is so special. No one's reading that book right now. You mentioned the rhythm that baseball is. The broadcasters are affected by this, but also the players. How do you think, because it takes a couple of weeks, it takes the at-bats, it takes the innings that the pitchers are pitching to get into their own rhythm. How long do you think it will, once the baseball season begins this year, again, thinking optimistically, how long do you think the spring training 2.0 is going to have to be realistically for the broadcasters and the players to get back into that rhythm that you were just talking about? Yeah. For broadcasters, it takes two innings, you know, but for players, it takes much, much longer, of course. And, you know, the, the standing line seems to be three weeks, uh, nothing short of that. Doesn't have to be longer because they've already had a version of spring training and guys are already have, have during the pandemic, they have been hitting and they've been doing some throwing, you know, not large groups or anything like that, but most of them have the ability to do that either at their own homes or a local school, university, high school, whatever. They can get on a mound and work with somebody that's proper. 60 feet, six inches is good social distancing, you know, so if you're going to throw. Uh, so I think three weeks uh, makes sense uh, whenever we can get back and, and players can be game ready in that span. I don't think it would require much longer than that. Some players would disagree. A lot of pitchers would disagree. But I think these are different times. You don't want to risk injury, but I really don't think you are if you get that amount of time. Certainly for the hitters, it'll be easier. The pitchers are going to lag behind. But that would be my best bet. Mm -hmm. Let's get into your career. You said this would be your 30th year at an, in an MLB broadcast booth. Looking back at it, and I know we talked about this last year when we were at Fenway Park together, and we were looking over the stadium and the Green Monster in the background, and you went to Fenway with your dad as a kid. Did you ever think you would be sitting here right now, 30 years later, as an MLB broadcaster? Well, I, I, at that point, you know, when, when my dad would take me to games like so many New England kids, you know, going with their pop or going with their brothers, with their Little League teams or their Boy Scout troops, as I did, you know, growing up in, in New Hampshire and in Massachusetts. I was born in Boston, born in the same hospital Ted Kennedy. Senator Ted Kennedy was born in, actually, and grew up in Quincy uh, and then uh, the South Shore of Massachusetts. I, I, you know, when you begin to think, what might I do? What, what is it I love? What are my parents encouraging? What are my teachers saying? You know, I was probably 11, 12 years old before the idea of being a broadcaster popped into my head. And I can remember looking, you know, from where we were sitting, my, my dad and my brothers and I, three brothers, and we would all go to Fenway together. I remember looking back into the broadcast booth and seeing the lights on in the television booth and asking my dad what, what was going on there. And he said, well, those are the announcers. They're getting ready for the game. Those are the guys you watch on TV or listen to on the radio. And I think I spent more time that day or that night watching the broadcast booth than watching what the Sox were doing on the field of Fenway because it was fascinating that, you know, you could be paid to go to Fenway Park, uh, not pay, but be paid to be there, and they feed you in the press box, and, and this is what you get to do. And I got to tell you, Alex, I mean, 
probably four or five times a summer to this day, before I go on the air, I will look out and take in that scene at Fenway Park. And it all rushes back to me. I feel like an eight-year-old kid again or a 10 or 12-year-old kid again because it's such a special place. Uh, you know, we like to say it's, it's the best ballpark in America. And we're partial to it. We grew up here. But I've been to every park. And I've been to many parks that have since closed. There's no better place to see a baseball game than Fenway Park uh, on the face of the earth. And I know that, you know, Yankee fans might say that about, no, they wouldn't say that about Yankee Stadium. It's, it's, it, this one's still pretty new, you know. Uh, the old one was something else. This, this, one, uh, this one's pretty antiseptic. But, you know, Wrigley's great. Dodger Stadium's phenomenal. But Fenway, and I'm fortunate because I, I feel like I grew up there. I learned my, my baseball chops at Fenway. It's the best. And it's not even close. And I feel like every park has its own uniqueness about it. You know, you go to Yankee Stadium expecting one thing. You go to Fenway expecting something. Wrigley, Oracle Park, you know, they're, they all are special in their own way. But you mentioned the getting, you know, the food at Fenway. There's nothing better than some popcorn, right? But, you know, I work with Jerry Remy, and uh, the Rem Dog, before every game, gets, gets a big, big thing of popcorn. He's got to have that. Uh, for me, I've always been a Fenway Franks guy, you know. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a couple of those, and I'm, 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 in, uh, I'm in heaven. But, you know, to each his own. And, you know, in recent years, you could get lobster rolls at Fenway. When I was a kid, forget it, you know. It was, it was popcorn or it was a hot dog, and that was it. And that was fine. It was more than enough. You know, that and a Coke, and you were in great shape. But uh, it's amazing how these ballparks have, you know, to the point where you can eat – I mean, in Seattle, you can eat grasshoppers, you know, uh, you know with garlic uh, salt or whatever they put on them to try to make them edible. Uh, they're atrocious. But, I mean, it's incredible what you can eat at the ballpark. A lot of people will, will walk away going, yeah, I don't really know what happened in the game, but I can tell you what I had in the second inning and the fourth inning and the sixth inning to eat, you know. That's how it is these days. And the vast array of, you know, beers and craft foods, pretty amazing today. Mm -hmm. Now, we were talking before we started recording this, I'm in upstate New York, Albany area, about two, two and a half hours away from Syracuse University, the most prestigious sports broadcasting school in the country, one of them. Why Syracuse? Well, I mean, it, that'd be a two-parter because, you know, for me, I know I went to Syracuse for exactly that reason, because Bob Costas and Marv Albert had gone, Dick Stockton had gone to Syracuse. And then, you know, I went to school with, Mike Tirico and Sean McDonough and a half dozen other guys who have gone on and done some amazing things in broadcasting. And um, it was the place and remains for my money, the place to go. If you want to be on the air and you want to be a sports announcer, you want to be a play by play person, there's no better uh, laboratory than the carrier dome on a Saturday afternoon with 30,000 people in the stands and you're doing the play-by-play -play on WAER radio, the student radio station, where all of those guys I just talked about called games at one point, as, as I did, um, starting out with a tape recorder in my lap, you know, with my partner next to me and trying to balance the tape recorder, the microphone, and the game notes and call the game in a sea of students around you. That's how you earned your way onto WAER radio, the student. I mean, the very first game I ever called 
play by play wise was Patrick Ewing and John Thompson in the Carrier Dome against Pearl Washington and the Syracuse Orange of Jim Beheim, 35,000 people. And at one point, John Thompson had to take his team off the field because the fans had lost it. They were starting to throw things on the field. Thompson took his team off the court. And so for 10 minutes, we had to fill. Um, and you know, you know as well as I do, two minutes of fill uh, unscripted is a, an eternity for a broadcaster, uh, let alone 10 minutes before he finally brought them back onto the floor. Um, so that was a great baptism of fire. You only get those experiences in a place like Syracuse, uh, where there's a lot of competition to be on the air. Um, you know, Mike Tirico talks, he's told the story a couple of times. I, I think, you know, it, it may not be true, but he said, when I showed up to campus, all the other students who were vying for airtime on WER were like, oh, God, we're never going to get on now. Listen to this guy. He sounds like he's 40 years old. Well, I didn't. I, I still sounded like I was about 18 or 19 years old. But I had been on the air for a couple of years in New Hampshire uh, so that I could earn enough money to go to Syracuse. And I had a little more experience. So I sounded, you know, more polished than, than some of those guys, who, by the way, turned out to be great broadcasters. You mentioned the competitiveness that not only Syracuse has at the college level, but also the sports broadcasting industry. You know, once you graduate college, that competitiveness factor that goes into it does, doesn't just disappear, right? And you learn yeah. what that is like in college. And then once you graduate and you get into the job market, you realize, oh, there's more of it here. Oh, yeah. Thinking back at your time with at Syracuse, what was the most eye-opening experience that you had about this industry? Having the prior experience that you had, you, I'm sure you had some sort of inclination. Again, you've really known and that you wanted to do this since you were eight years old at Fenway Park, looking up at the broadcast booth at Fenway. Now in college, you're pursuing your dreams. What was the most eye-opening experience that you had? It was probably that that pedigree that having gone to that particular school, gone to the Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse, worked with the people I worked with, uh, was probably that how much that helped me. Uh, that was the eye-opener because I, I was applying for jobs, but the job that I accepted, uh, I was still a student. I had yet to graduate. It was in my senior year. They came looking for me. I didn't go looking for them. I uh, wound up in South Carolina at a radio station and, and uh, worked there for only six months before I jumped to Atlanta, a larger market, big station. That led to a lot of great things, including play-by-play -play with the Atlanta Braves. But um, And I was only in my mid-20s at that point. But probably the, the, the foot in the door that Syracuse will give you uh, because you're so well-prepared when you step off that campus. And the reputation – uh, really precedes in the industry, as you've said, and you framed it very, very nicely that, you know, it's an industry standard and you know what you're going to get uh, typically from a play-by-play -play or commentator, a graduate of Syracuse, you know, you're going to be way ahead by the time you leave upstate New York with that degree. And, and I know I was, and, you know, part of it, big part of it was I had to compete with people like, you know, Sean McDonough and, and, and people like Mike Tirico and Bill Roth who wound up at, 
Virginia Tech for 25 years calling, calling games and, and a slew of guys like that. And, you know, the other thing, you know, that, that it set the table for you very nicely to be there when we had people like Bob Costas uh, coming back to campus as speakers. And they would be very much involved with undergraduates like me and, and, and guys you could contact. I remember I had a question right after I had uh, taken my first job at, uh, out of Syracuse. I had a question about should I accept an offer with the next step. And the first person I thought of to reach out to was Bob, um, who I consider the best broadcaster around, did then and still do, an amazing communicator, just incredible. Uh, but Bob responded to my letter in four days, you know, and it came in an NBC envelope. And, you know, Bob, he gave me some phenomenal advice, which I treasured. I, I actually followed and it worked out great for me. It was, it was tremendous, great wisdom. But that's one of the great advantages of Syracuse is the contacts you make and the people you wind up working with, and in some cases for, uh, in the business. You mentioned contacts and networking. It's one of the biggest pieces. Obviously, you need a talent. Obviously, you need a, a decent reel to last in the industry, but it's also who you know. And we were talking also before we started this, John Shambi was on this podcast last week, and he mm -hmm. said, he gave you a tape once and you told him, this is actually pretty good. And John joked that that was the nicest thing that uh, you said to him, kind of jokingly <laughs> said you had a great sense of humor. Uh, and, you know, what he did and is still doing, obviously, you have to have a passion for this. You have to have a love for what you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it for very long. It takes a special person and a special passion to do this type of career. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. And that's the first thing that I tell prospective broadcast uh, students or those who are just getting into business. What do you love about it? Do you love doing this? Do you love being at the ballpark? Do you love being in the booth uh, at a football field? And if, if the answer is there's nothing else I'd rather do than to be there and calling the game, uh, then you're doing the right thing. If there's any hesitation on that at all, if you're like, well, you know, I could see myself being an anchor on SportsCenter, I could see myself being a producer or whatever, well, then don't do this because it, first of all, it requires, you mentioned the competition, it requires so much of your focus and your passion and everything you've got just to break into the business. And then if you're lucky enough, and there is a considerable amount of luck to it, if you're lucky enough to land a great job, like the first big gig I got was as a radio play-by-play -play man uh, with the Atlanta Braves. When they gave me the job, I was 25. And I was walking in the booth with Skip Carey and Pete Van Weeren and Don Sutton, which was a great education unto itself. But I was just a kid. But I think overwhelmingly my passion and love, not just for baseball, but for all sports, was the single most important thing in getting me there at that time. And I'll bet you, you know, Joe Buck would say the same thing. and Al Michaels would say the same thing. And John Shambi would say the same thing. You know, I had this similar conversation with this with Jeff Levering two days ago. And I asked him, you know, he worked 10, 15 years to get to the major league level. He's now, this will be his fifth year with the Brewers. How for you, 30 years at the major league level, how do you still make sure that you're not becoming complacent? 
that you're not, you're still improving every single day. You're still adding some new vocabulary, learning how not to overuse certain words, add the captions to the pictures, because obviously radio and TV are two completely different beasts within itself, whether it's radio play-by-play or TV play-by-play. 30 years at the major league level, how does Dave O'Brien not become complacent broadcasting? Well, the guy that I think of as the template for it and, you know, how he managed his career is, is beyond me because he was in the booth for 60 years is Vin Scully. And Vin Scully never got tired of it. Vin Scully never stopped trying to be, I mean, I think he was as close to perfect as, as a communicator can get, not just sports, a communicator, period. Um, I think he's, he's certainly one of the greatest handful, and I mean two or three pure communicators in the history of this country. Just happened to be a baseball announcer. And if Vin never got uh, to the point where he, he thought he had it licked, you know, and he never did, uh, and he was, he was adamant about that, then I certainly uh, couldn't and shouldn't do that. If, if Doc Emmerich doesn't feel that way about hockey, I shouldn't feel that way about whatever sports that, that I'm doing. And you're exactly right, I think. And there are people who kind of wear down and wear out with it. Maybe they get a, a sense of burnout. But um, I, I look at it this way. If I come home from like a June Sox game at Fenway, Red Sox, Texas Rangers, Sox are in third place. Okay. I come home at night. If there was something that occurred in that night's game, that I needed to see again, or I didn't think we handled it quite the way we should have, or, uh, or, or I wanted to, to see if we did it as well as I thought, if we executed it as a broadcast. If, if I don't go and watch it back that very evening, um, I'm, I'm not doing the audience a favor. I'm certainly not doing myself or, or the broadcast any favors. So I think if I still have that urge, that necessity to go and air check may not be the entire game. It may only be a couple of innings. But as long as that instinct is still in me, that means I'm still trying to improve, still hoping to get better, and hoping to deliver a better broadcast. It's about just the overall networking that this is, not becoming complacent. What would be one thing that you kind of most love about this career? Is it just the constant day-to-day that you're watching a game, let's say it's the Red Sox versus the Tampa Bay Rays game one, and the next night is a completely different game. Yeah, every game is different. Uh, people talk about that all the time. Oh, 162 games. You're on the air all the time. You know, how does it, how does it stay fresh? How does it, every game is different, and every athlete's performance is different from the day before. Um, I never lose sight of this fact too, Alex, that I'm watching the best athletes in the world on the whole planet. These are the best 750 baseball players that you're going to find. Okay. And they're doing it at such a high level. It's often artwork, you know, it's athletic art. Uh, I never find that boring. I never find that dull. Baseball, as you know, is a slow, Sometimes ponderous game, I get that. But, but oftentimes, the game is the most interesting when there's nothing happening. When the pitcher's holding the ball at the thigh, looking in for a sign, if the eighth inning and there's 
bases are loaded. It's a tie score. The place is going nuts. And that dugout is looking at that dugout. And both bullpens are going. And you've got infielders shifting like crazy. I mean, there's so much going on that I find it. Uh, my father used to say this. He used to say, baseball is only boring to people with boring minds. And I found that to be eternally true. I, I really do. So for me, it isn't like you walk into the booth and go, how am I going to make this interesting today? What, what if Raphael Devers hits three home runs today, drives in 14 runs? Um, you know, you, you could see a guy hit for the cycle, which happens uh, less frequently than, than guys throw no hitters. You never know what's going to happen. I've called, I've called eight no hitters in my career, and no two of them were even close to being alike, you know? And not to mention dozens and dozens that were lost after the seventh inning when you were, you know, churning for that moment. I, I was, uh, for a time, I did Mets television while I was alongside doing ESPN. I just did weekends, and I worked games with uh, Tom Seaver. So I only did like a 50-game package every year. But one of those games happened to be Tom Glavin, who was a Met for a time, the end of his career, bringing a no-hitter into the eighth inning at a time when the Mets, this was still at Old Chase Stadium, the Mets had never had a no-hitter. They've since had one, but they had not thrown a no-hitter at that time. And Glavin was getting close. He was within like six outs. Closest the Mets had been in a while. We checked, he lost it, but we checked the ratings the next day. And in New York City, the ratings quadrupled over the course of that a no-hitter over the last two innings. They went through the roof because people were expecting, this is the moment. It's actually going to happen. You had Met fans, baseball fans all over New York who had never seen a Met throw a no-hitter, and they could not wait to, to see it. So uh, that was an example of how powerful this stuff can be, that on any given day, you know, Tom Glavin might be that close to a no-hitter for the first time making history, and you're the, if you're lucky enough, you're there to see it. If you're even luckier, in my opinion, you get a chance to broadcast it. So um, – I always feel like you're lucky to be in the booth, no matter what the circumstances are, any day, and regardless of the sport, too. Mm -hmm. You mentioned just working with great people in the booth. You obviously work with two great people right now, Remy and, of course, Eckersley. Yeah. What's kind of your favorite moment that you've had with those two in the booth? Well, we've had a lot of them. Um, th that booth has become uh, maybe the most fun I've, I've had in a broadcast booth. And, and that's saying something because with all the stuff I've been able to do, I've worked with over 250 partners. Uh, I've never worked with two guys individually and as a team who are as good as these guys. They're incredible. Um, but just being in the booth with them on a, re on a regular basis is, is something. But, you know, Dennis Eckersley will say anything. Okay. And, and Rem's good at putting on the brakes or trying to get him to, you know, at least pump it a little bit. This was one of our first broadcasts as a three man booth. Uh, our sideline reporter, Garen Austin tossed it up to us. And it was something like, you know, what, what was your most embarrassing moment in baseball? Something like that. And Eck jumps right into, well, I got to say it was probably when my best friend stole my wife <laughs> when I was, when I was pitching for the Indians and I went on a road trip, and I came home, and she told me to leave the house because my best friend, who was a teammate of his, uh, Rick Manning, was all of a sudden with Mrs. Eckersley. So 
Um, he had been injured. So he went on to tell the story. But we're trying to get him to, you know, maybe not so much personal business here, Eric, but because most, well, most people were not aware of that story. But that was probably, and we lost it, of course. We were just, you know, on the floor. Uh, but that's, that's working with Dennis. And that's one of the great things about working with both of those guys and, and together as a three-man unit. Uh, you never know what you're going to hear. You never know where they're going to go with either a point of view or a personal anecdote. And that really makes it fun. Dave, this is my favorite part of the show. I know last time we did the Fast Five, you showed off your Vince Scully impression. Uh-huh, yeah. So maybe with this Fast Five, we can maybe get the responses with a Vince Scully impression. You mentioned over 250 broadcasters that you've worked with. Who's yeah. one broadcaster that you haven't worked with but would want to? Oh, boy, that's a great that's a great question. Um, I'd really have to think about, you know, on the baseball side, um, I'd love to do a game with John Smoltz because I've known Smoltzy for a long time. He was a young pitcher with the Atlanta Braves. My first job was with the Atlanta Braves. I was a young guy, and when they would bring up a pitcher like Smoltz, he was about the same age I was, you know, if not a couple of years younger. Same with Tom Glavin. And I think he's developed into a phenomenal uh, analyst. Uh, Tim McCarver was a guy I would have loved to, to have sat next to and, and picked his brain for, for nine innings. I mean, I'm so fortunate because I've got two guys who are, you know, in that Hall of Fame class as announcers, in my opinion. So I, I want for nothing in the booth these days. Uh, I've worked with, you know, Jay Billis on hoops. I've worked with Doris Burke, who's incredible. Uh, many, many games at Dickie V, who could not be a better human being. So I've been really, really lucky in, in that respect. I'll tell you, I'd, I'd answer this another way, though. A guy that I would love to have one more shot at, just one more game. He's no longer with us. He was a former partner of mine. And his name was Rick Majerus, who's a former uh, basketball coach at, uh, at Utah and also at St. Louis. Uh, and we were partnered together for two years. Very, very interesting man. Brilliant, brilliant basketball coach. Um, and I, if I had another opportunity, you know, to, to work a game with Rick, I would just tell him how much I enjoyed that first go around and how much basketball he taught me. Who was one favorite teacher or professor you had growing up? Well, honestly, I, I think the the best uh, the best teachers for me have really been broadcasters. But uh, there was a gentleman I worked with when I was 17 years old in New Hampshire, a little radio station, Keene, New Hampshire, WKNE, uh, and that's the first paying broadcast job I got. I was only 17 years old, uh, and they really took a, sh a chance at me and. I did late nights and overnights. They put me in a safe place where not many people could hear me. But I remember him telling me once, his name was Howard Corday, who's our program director. And I remember Howard pulling me aside once and saying, you know, you've got a real sportsy sound. You, you better make sure that your career is in sports because that's where you belong. You sound sportsy. And he meant that as a real compliment, you know, because he was a huge sports lover. He wanted to be a sports announcer. His career took him elsewhere. But uh, that, was, that was probably one of the most important things a teacher uh, ever told me or, or ever taught me. I mean, I had some great professors at, at Syracuse, 
but I, I really look to other broadcasters um, as, as great counsel for me. What's your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is uh, announcers who give up on the game too early, who will tell you in so many words, this is over. In other words, don't even bother to watch. You know, this isn't even worth your time. And that has always rankled me. And occasionally I'll work with a partner, not the guys I work with on the Red Sox, but maybe a basketball game. And it's gotten to 17 points and only four minutes to go. And their tone anyway would lead the, the viewer to believe, hey, I'm going to go find something better to do. And I always think that's dangerous because I've called so many games in different sports that we thought were, were done, that this is going to be your final result. And it didn't end up that way, not even close. And, you know, if you, if you kiss a game off before it's, uh, it, it's really had time to, to be a final, I think you're doing your, your viewers a real disservice. So I try not to do that. And if I find myself going that way, there's a voice inside my head saying, don't do it. What's your biggest fear? In the booth? Sure, yeah. Um, my, my biggest fear is, is, I guess, probably that I will make some basic mistake, um, like give the wrong score uh, or give a guy an RBI or a home run who didn't hit it. It was our third baseman, not our shortstop. I think those are the things that drive every announcer. You know, you're, you're trying to be technically perfect. It's really hard to do. Even Scully couldn't pull it off. Uh, every day of his life, and he and believe me, he'd be the first one to tell you that. But you you keep coming back and trying to be perfect. But that's it. You know, you're working on that every day. You you want to make sure someone tuning into the game, either TV or on radio, you know, they, they may not have been with you for the last hour and a half. Um, so they need an accurate accounting, and they need it quickly. They need it efficiently to get caught up, so that they're comfortably. In, in the lane for the rest of the day or however long they're going to watch or listen. What is your go-to ice cream topping? Uh, for me, that would be whipped cream. Yeah. I, I'm not a, I'm not a nuts guy. So, I mean, I'll do sprinkles on occasion, you know, but usually I, I'll, it's just the whipped cream, obviously chocolate sauce underneath there. I mean, clearly, but you know, the whipped cream, that's, that's the topping for me. Nothing too crazy, too fancy, but, you know, delicious nonetheless. Vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream? I'm a big chocolate ice cream guy. Okay. Yeah, very, I'm very vanilla. Yeah. I'm vanilla. Hey, you know, to each his own. And, you know, people would look at us and go, oh, that's boring. You know. No, it's not. Right. It's, it's, it's all American is what it is. You know. So I know we started this Vince Scully impression. Do you have any other hidden talent that Dave O'Brien might have that no one might know about? Uh, yeah, I, well, I think so. And I, I, people have told me that I, there was a, a long period of time where I thought I was going to be a sports writer mm -hmm. because I can write. Uh, I like to think that I can write and put a couple of sentences together. Um, in fact, my youngest daughter for a Christmas gift this year uh, last year, got me a typewriter, uh, an old-fashioned Smith & Corona typewriter. God only knows where she found it, but it's exactly like the one I used when I was a student at Syracuse. A little idea how old I am. So we were still using typewriters back in the day. 
I'm still trying to find out where, where I'm supposed to get a ribbon for this thing. But, um, but I used to write like crazy on that thing. And I, I keep a journal, you know, I keep a daily journal and, and write a lot. My wife thinks I should be writing a book right now, which might not be a bad idea. I don't know who would read it, but uh, that's, that's every author's nightmare, I guess. But uh, we live right down the street from one of the greatest authors in America today, Dan Brown, mm. in Rhino, New Hampshire. Uh, Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code and all that. He's one of our neighbors. Now, he can flat right. I think the rest of us are just pretending, but I pretend okay. So, Dave, my last question for you on this podcast, what's been one of your most proudest career moments up to this moment in time? Well, I've been really lucky. Uh, I think that, you know, to, to be in the booth for so many great Red Sox moments and seasons, I, I, I'm endlessly fortunate uh, for that. But I, I think, um, you know, I mean, I've called seven women's Final Fours, most of those involving the University of Connecticut. Um, but I, I, I think probably, you know, being in the booth for a World Series clincher, uh, as I was in 2013 on radio with Joe Castiglione, I would, I would put that at the very top because – that was a sensational run by the Red Sox. Uh, it was an unexpected run. They weren't supposed to be that good uh, in 2013. At Band of Brothers, those bearded guys, they all came together and, and pulled it off. And what David Ortiz did uh, all season long, and then he hit an incredible home run in the uh, American League Championship Series, which, you know, is, is, a, is a call that I'm very, very proud of. But also, you know, beating the Tigers and then beating St. Louis and being at the microphone when the Red Sox clinched at Fenway Park, it's tough to beat that. It's tough to beat the sound of a Fenway Park uh, filled to the very top on an October night and the Red Sox winning the World Series at home. First time in about 100 years they had done that. So if, if you're force, forcing me to say one moment, you know, and I've been really fortunate to do a lot of different things, it would have to be that. Well, Dave, thanks so much again for taking the time to come on this podcast today. I know you are Twitterless, but Howie Rose just joined Twitter this past weekend. He has some extra time on his hands. Howie did it, this week. Yes. Is it possible that we see Dave O'Brien join Twitter in the near future? I guess it's possible, but I, I tell people this who ask me this question. Uh, why, how come you're not on Twitter? How come you're not on social media? And I say, well, number one, I've got a microphone a lot of the time. That's what I consider Twitter for me. If I want to say something, I've got a microphone, you know, uh, 162 nights a year with the Red Sox and uh, another 40 or 50 doing football and basketball. So I think people have plenty of me. I know I, I would consider that plenty of Dave O'Brien. So I don't know if I need another platform necessarily. And I get a chance to come on with you and, and we get a chance to talk about broadcasting and sports. So I, I, I think that's plenty. I don't need any more for myself. I'll put it that way. And I'm pretty darn sure nobody else does. Well, Dave, thanks again for coming on today. I greatly appreciate it. Great to see you, Alex.